welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. I don't think I will ever forget walking through St Pancras Station with no one else in it, watching trains stop for no one to get on and no one to get off, and eight months later walking past restaurants that would have been humming with tipsy people and Christmas lights, with their chairs stacked on the table and a homeless person sleeping in the doorway. Cities are finally coming back to life now, but how much has changed? Which cities will thrive and which are going to be in trouble? And what can we do to stop them shutting down again? Edward Glazer is a professor of economics at Harvard and the author, with David Cutler, of Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Ed, if I may, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you so much for having me on. I wanted to talk first about 1348. That was when a group of 10 young people from Florence decided they had had enough of watching people die of plague in the streets and set off for their country estates to tell each other stories. That's the plot device of Boccaccio's Decameron. And for those rich and connected enough, it resonated in 2020 as well. Ed, after a fortnight, just a fortnight, uh, these young people packed up and went home to Florence and returned to the usual round of socialising. But cities haven't always survived outbreaks of disease, have they? No, no. Uh, If you go back to the plague of Athens that struck in 430 BCE, it was a, a, you know, event that hit what may have been the most iconic of all classical cities, the city that was doing all that you could possibly ask for an urban area to do, connecting brilliant people, enabling them to do miraculous things in the arts, in politics, creating democracy itself, building architecture, creating history. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Peloponnesian War starts. Pericles' plan is to bring the Athenians behind the city's walls and let his fleet go out and harass the, the Peloponnesian coast. And while the walls of Athens kept out the Spartan hoplites, they did not keep out disease. It was a debilitating event perhaps a fourth of the city's population dead in two years. Thucydides, who was there, writes of a city that is totally captured by chaos. And while Athens soldiers on for another quarter century fighting Sparta, it would eventually lose. And this once greatest of Mediterranean cities would become decidedly lessened as a result of the plague. So when we went into lockdown in 2020 for the first time in Britain, that felt new in It felt like something completely unprecedented in my lifetime. But quarantining and that concept wasn't actually new. How has it been done before? So quarantine uh, goes back to the Middle Ages, right? Ragusa or Dubrovnik, as it's now known, is the place that really gives us quarantine first. And it's very much a response to the Black Death. Typically, it's 40 days, no no particularly good medical reason for 40 days, hence the quaranta, but you know, it has a certain amount of biblical precedent, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days on the ark, and so forth. Quarantine was the tool that was used through the 19th century to try and address the spread of disease. It's always been a fairly, you know, only modestly effective tool, particularly for states that weren't protected by water. So, you know, cholera and yellow fever, which struck the cities of, of the Northeast, cholera also was a devastating blow to London in its, in its time, right? These were places where quarantine just wasn't going to protect against uh, these diseases, partially because the boats got through, as indeed English smugglers supposedly delivered cholera into France in, in 1832. In those cases, really, we had to move on from quarantine just because our states weren't good enough at protecting our borders. And if we think about it, really, only a small number of countries have been able to lock their borders to lock out COVID-19 during the past year and a half, either because we're just not willing to endure the isolation or or we just did it too late, as America did. You know, we, we may have barred flights from China early on, but, you know, as long as the doors are still open to tourists returning home from Italy, the disease still got in. The 
1918 Spanish flu pandemic was the last global pandemic really before COVID-19. And in some respects, it was not unlike COVID, but it did not at all have the completely transformative economic effect that COVID has had. Why didn't that happen? Not at all. Um, And in some sense, our economies have become far more vulnerable to pandemic over the past, gosh, 650 years. In the medieval period, the Black Death slaughtered a third of the population, but those who were left had far more land per capita. And so the the landowners were bidding up wages and actually the survivors ended up being far richer. In 1918, 1919, we were an industrial economy. And while factories and mines were shut down because everyone got sick, uh, when they recovered, if they recovered, the factories would reopen because there was no lack of consumer demand for the ice boxes or Model T Fords that were the industrial products of that era, just as there's been no lack of demand for durable goods today. But over the past century, as the factories have shuttered, as they've outsourced, as automation has become ubiquitous, the ability to serve a latte with a smile has been an employment safe haven for those less skilled workers uh, throughout our, our urban world. And yet those jobs can disappear in a heartbeat when that smile becomes a source of peril rather than a source of pleasure. And so when COVID-19 struck, all of a sudden, the entire urban service economy was brought into, into danger. And it's, you know, we're still fighting to get through that. You actually write in the book that the rich protected themselves by telecommuting while the less fortunate remained vulnerable. Not since Nero have the pleasures of the rich imposed such costs upon the poor. And that view has also been expressed in Britain. There was one journalist who wrote recently, there was never any lockdown. There was just middle class people hiding while working class people brought them things. You saw that in the cases in London boroughs. I remember tracking as soon as each lockdown started, the cases in relatively rich boroughs like Richmond and Cam- Camden plummeted and the ones in Barking, where a lot of poorer people live, stayed high. Is this going to be inevitable in any pandemic in the modern era? Is there any way to stop this same inequalities just being exacerbated? It's very hard. And it's hard, too, because the mortality effects are exacerbated by other forms of health behaviors, which are more common among less educated, like being obese or uh, having other forms of lung ailments. But the work of my colleague, Graj Chetty, finds that the mortality increase in 2020 was entirely experienced by poorer Americans. Richer Americans didn't die at all more, more frequently. And as you say, they protected themselves. It's very hard to imagine how you stop that, right? People have resources. They're afraid for their lives. Uh, It wasn't, in many cases, lockdowns that actually stopped the commerce, that stopped people going out. It was just fear. And, you know, as long as rich people have money to spend and poor people are willing to risk their lives to uh, deliver food or risk some form of a disease, that will continue. I think going forward, we need to worry about a more robust public health response to make sure this doesn't happen at all and to work on the more fundamental things that, you know, can limit the degree of inequality that we have in our society. But certainly, as you think about uh, a future with more telecommuting, that's a future that feels like it's going to become even more unequal, right? Because these remote working technologies have just proven to be so much more commonly used by the rich than by the poor. In May 2020, which was the apex of telecommuting, 68.9% of Americans with advanced degrees were dialing it in. Only 5% of Americans who were high school dropouts were working remotely. So really just a huge gulf by education, a huge inequality that we really have to think about seriously going forward. Do you worry that cities will start to atomize as more people work from home and stop commuting? I mean, some people see that as a good thing. They see that as perhaps the impetus for the 15-minute city, which is 
very popular in some circles as a concept. You're more skeptical about it. What do you see happening and what are are the pitfalls in terms of the way cities organize themselves? I think this will not happen once we get the health risks under control. Once once we're healthy again, I don't think that cities will atomize. But there's no question that I fear that. And I think more separation between neighborhood sounds pretty bad to me rather than pretty good. I mean, I, I like the idea that cities are open and connected. And as someone who has worried about and worked on racial segregation in America's cities for well over a quarter century, you know, when I hear 15-minute city, I hear ghetto walls rising. Right. I hear African-American children being locked off from access to neighborhoods with safety and opportunity. And I think I very much hope for a world in which adults and children of all income brackets move fluidly throughout the entire city, connecting and working and learning and being part of this great cooperative enterprise that is the modern metropolis. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. You're very critical of the way the World Health Organization has tried to manage the pandemic. What has it got wrong? So I I, want to make it clear that The Health Economist is my co-author. I will answer your question, but if any of our listeners have any problems with what I'm saying, please direct those to David Cutler, not to me. (laughs) (laughs) But the, uh, the, 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 the criticism that we make in the book are that the World Health Organization is a very large UN based organization, which has huge incentives to placate its powerful members, either because they're funders like China or because they feel sorry for them, like the countries of Africa that suffered from Ebola. That means that politics becomes a very significant part of their health messaging. Right? That's exactly you know the last thing that you need. And instead, you need a deeply targeted scientific organization that is, you know, has a clear mission. The analogy we use is, is NATO. North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which had a very clear mission, stopping nuclear war, stopping uh, the Soviet Union from conquering Europe. It had, by and large, technical leadership. It wasn't a a political free-for-all. And it was wildly successful. You know, we have the same sort of vision for health, that we need to start again with a smaller agency that is, you know, has a smaller number of countries who really buy in to the idea that we're going to treat pandemic as an incredibly serious and incredibly costly thing. That means we're going to put real money on the table. That means we're going to require a real partnership across countries where we all agree to monitoring of disease outbreaks and in some sense to agree to a certain amount of draconian conditions like our willingness to close our borders uh, when disease shows up. And which countries would be part of this NATO of healthcare? Well, I I always hope that your country and mine will be leading the way on this, sir. <laughs> but, you know, as as many as are willing to, to move forward on this, it's not meant to be exclusive, but it does, it does require a, a serious commitment. I also think it's very important that this entity take seriously the idea of partnership with the developing world. Because if we learned anything from COVID, it's that it's a disease that starts anywhere, can spread anywhere. 
So consequently, we all have a stake in making sure that superbugs don't breed in the the sewers of, of India's great cities. Now, you know, I think there's a reasonable trade here, which is that Western countries help pay for things like sewers or other sanitary infrastructure in the developing world in exchange for tougher regulations that stop human beings from connecting to wild animals and, and tougher regulations that actually require people to connect to the sewers. So we fight, you know, waterborne diseases in the same way that we did in the 19th century with clean water, rather than constantly administering large doses of antibiotics, which is the current way that we do these things in in the developing world, which really does create a global threat of an antibiotic-resistant superbug. So health really has become almost a bargaining chip in trade. I mean, if you're thinking about doing this, then obviously China is somewhere that's going to have to change the way it it rears animals and how it manages that. Do we have that kind of leverage? Would it be possible to say to China, right, we're not actually going to trade this particular thing with you unless you, you clean up your act? You know, I think we certainly need to talk about those things. Our leverage over China may be, may be relatively modest, but, you know, we do have the rights to, to restrict products that we think are unsafe. So I, I am not going to go so far as to try and suggest how this bargaining should go forward, how the diplomacy should move forward. But we need to treat this risk really seriously. And we need to recognize that places that have traditionally spread diseases are ones that need to be watched. I'm thinking about the US in particular and how it's done during the pandemic. Clearly, Trump was an element. But one of the key points you make in the book is that it wasn't just Trump, that America was just really, really badly prepared for a pandemic. Why was that? Well, uh, you know, we've we've had warnings. We've had SARS. We've had MERS. We've had H1N1. Uh, you know, we failed to take reasonable precautions. In some sense, as you pointed out, it's been a, a blessed century since we've had a really catastrophic pandemic. And I think none of us believed that this thing was going to be real. I mean, I sort of remember, as I'm sure you do, March or February of 2020, thinking that this was you know, likely an overblown minor event. How wrong, how wrong I was. We're often bad at you know, taking the long view and actually investing in, in preventing catastrophes before they've arrived. This is also true in the case of climate change. We are fraught by political divides, which in some sense made fighting pandemic into a sort of political thing. There's an old line typically associated with New York Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, that there's no democratic or Republican way to clean the streets. Well, there certainly shouldn't be a democratic or Republican way to fight pandemic, right? This is a, a scientific thing that you know, everybody should be on board that we want to stop our people from dying. And yet it became very, very politicized, which is a sign of, of something deeply unhealthy, which has emerged in American culture. So there's no one clear answer for sort of moving towards a culture that, that actually prioritizes good government, effective government, and truth. But we need to fight for it as much as possible. There are some US cities that are doing a lot better in the modern era with urbanity, really, with with dealing with the problems that a lot of people living in close proximity brings about. Where do you really worry about in America at the moment? Where do you most worry about? So what's interesting is prior to 2019, I would have said that a lot of America's most well-performing cities were actually in the Sun Belt. They're Sun Belt cities that take education seriously, but that also have relatively pro-business attitudes. Cities like, you know, Austin, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Charlotte, Raleigh, Plano, Texas, or or even parts of, or even, even Dallas, right? But in some sense, the politicization of the disease made them, you know, much more problematic in terms of dealing with the with the outbreak. And it was the you know coastal cities that have been most assiduous in terms of the vaccinations and moving forward on 
on that uh, realm. As we look to the future and, and hope that we get past the pandemic, the trends ahead are, are going to continue to favor places that you know attracted skilled people beforehand. What teleworking has done is that it's made it easier than ever for highly skilled people, for highly skilled businesses to relocate. And so that's going to make attractive smaller cities appealing. That's going to make the competition for global talent heat up. And that means that, you know, cities everywhere need to up their game and need to work on producing a level of government that's just much better than the level of government they have been uh, have been producing, which means in some cases worrying about costs, in other cases worrying about improving the quality of life, dealing with congestion problems. London's congestion charge has been around for at least 15 years now. It's a great global model, and yet not a single American city has embraced it, right? It's time that New York at least really assiduously do so. What is going to happen to Silicon Valley and the pressures there? So I think that by and large, Silicon Valley is probably going to get a bit cheaper. It's not necessarily going to get smaller. In fact, what telecommuting has done is they've reduced the cost of living on the edges of Silicon Valley and coming in two to three days a week. So in fact, you may well see even more sprawl outside of Silicon Valley. But I think the view that you're going to have a tech company where, you know, you've got 15 really smart, you know, 20-somethings or early 30-somethings that are really excited about their new product, the idea that this group is going to just say, oh, we'll just connect virtually, that's a non-starter. They're going to want to be you know, next to each other. They're going to want to be in the office, but they don't necessarily need to be in Silicon Valley. And so this group could easily decide, oh, we all like skiing. Let's move to Vail or we all like uh, surfing, let's move to Honolulu. That certainly is a possibility. Or we all like paying lower taxes, let's move to Austin, Texas. And so I think you can easily see a relocation of these firms, which would mean lower costs for Silicon Valley. You see a decline in demand for commercial real estate. But I think the, the region is basically just so strong in terms of its educational resources, in terms of its existing businesses, in terms of its you know climate. And I mean, literally, the temperate Mediterranean climate that it has. I think these things ensure that Silicon Valley will certainly continue, even if the prices of, of top commercial real estate drop by a bit. I keep reading in the New York Times that New York is back and it's coming alive again and it's going to be a great new era. Is the New York Times right? Well, the available data from Castle Technologies, uh, which is a, a company that tracks how open the their offices are, suggests that we still have a long way to go before New York City's offices are back. Their numbers come from a, a selected set of buildings, which are, are their buildings. The businesses that they have, you know, 40% occupancy, something like that in many of these, these areas. So they have actually even even lower here. They've got uh, the New York Metro occupancy in their in their buildings is 28.1%. So that's a lot lower than fully back. Dallas, by contrast, is at 45%. So these big offices are still awfully empty. Now, in terms of the streets, in terms of the, the consumer joys the, of the city, I think those have somewhat come back, but you know, uh, it's still a, a shadow of its former self. So New York will come back, but it, it really does need to, you really do need to get past Delta and get past the health shock before it really happens. And just lastly, thinking internationally, do you see certain cities that have, that have been thriving, falling back a bit? Uh, do you see others that are moving forward? I mean, some people say that, that for a while, you know, they said that Australia or New Zealand were the best places to be during the pandemic. Now, those, of course, have been in lockdown a long, long time in pursuit of zero COVID or the closest thing to it. And they haven't achieved that. Hopefully, they'll get to an endemic state without too many deaths. But where what where looks good for the future now? Well, it's hard not to think that East Asian economies have done extremely well, right? The the you know, Korea, Taiwan, 
these are places where, where they had uh, astoundingly good rates. Even, even Japan did quite well overall. It always pays to sort of look to how well those cities are being managed or how well those countries are being managed. Those are sort of very, uh, you know, just, just models of sort of good government. Singapore in particular always looks like a place that one should be learning from. I mean, Singapore has a much more functional congestion pricing system than London and introduced it in 1975. I think that those are, those are one set of examples. But of course, the, you know, I mean, for, for me, I continue to be in love with, I love with London and in love with many of the great European cities. And I think, in fact, London's great advantage is that it is a city of amazing sets of pleasures. And in a post-pandemic world, those will continue to be incredibly valuable. London doesn't just compete on being a place of business. It competes on being a place where it is just fun to be. Now, th- those those pleasures have been, has suffered a terrible hit because of COVID, but it's hard not to think that in a world of mobile talent, that will continue to be an enormous strength in a post-COVID world. Of course, to enjoy those, the UK government, like the US government, needs to make sure that they make investments so that this thing never happens again. Ed, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me on. Survival of the City is published by Hachette in the UK. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>